Keeley Companies was started almost 50 years ago by the one and only Larry Keeley. What started as a small family-owned paving company in St. Louis has grown to a nationally known full-service construction, development, and restoration partner. Larry the Legend, as he is affectionately known, has been a part of this growth every step of the way and continues to provide guidance as his son, Rusty, my buddy, drives their vision and achieves results on purpose. His unwavering foundation of a family culture with a focus on people has gotten Keeley Companies to where they are today, and their journey is truly just beginning. To learn more about Larry the Legend and Keeley Companies, check them out at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today, you are in for a massive treat. Get ready for it. Here we go. Dwayne Lee Chapman. Yeah, more commonly known as, you ready for this? Dog the Bounty Hunter. Dog the Bounty Hunter spent most of his first 23 years of life on the wrong side of the law. It was not until he was serving a prison sentence for a murder he did not even commit that helped turn his life around. He recommitted to his faith and it launched him ultimately on a journey that would make him a household name around the entire world. Considered the world's greatest bounty hunter, Dog has become famous for capturing fugitives on his iconic and his top-rated international television show. You've heard of it, Dog the Bounty Hunter. The fugitives Dog is chasing down have not only committed heinous crimes, but also break the terms of their bail agreements. It is Dog's job then to locate them and to arrest them. Yet that's not where his job ends. It's during these rides to jail that Dog counsels the offenders to turn their lives around, calling upon his own history of struggle and redemption. Today on the Live Inspired Podcast, Dog is going to join us to share how he turned his life around and went from being an ex-con to an American icon. And yet, my favorite part of the interview that you are about to hear occurs near the end. And it's not something that Dog shares or does. It's actually, actually something that happens when his wife, Francie, walks in. She joins us in the interview room. She literally sits on his lap, joins the show. It was one of the sweetest, one of the most spontaneous things that I've ever been part of on the Live Inspired podcast. Francie then shares a little bit about her story. She shares some of the amazing work that they are doing through the Dog Foundation, how they're providing housing and counseling and training and intervention services to victims of sex trafficking. From troubled beginnings, my friends, and tragedy to triumph into transformation, you are going to absolutely love this conversation, primarily with Dog the Bounty Hunter, but also near the end with his wife, Francie. So my friends, without further ado, please take your seats Grab your favorite Live Inspired journal. You may want to grab something to sip on because you are going to love this conversation with my new friend and soon to be yours, his name, Dog the Bounty Hunter. Dog, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John O'Leary. Hello. Man, I, Thank you for having me. I even like saying that. Dog the Bounty Hunter, welcome to Live Inspired. That, that feels real good. <laughs> for the one listener in the world who does not know who Dog the Bounty Hunter is, and you had to do your own introduction to that person. And if they said, dog, um, what do you do, man? How would you respond to that? What do you do, dog? Well, I would say in the early seventies, I rode with the motorcycle club. One percent are one of the toughest and meanest in the world. My gang members named me God spelled backwards because I always talked about God. I was raised in the assembly of God. So I, for three or four years, I kind of backslid. I went to prison in the, in the mid seventies and got out after 18 months and then became a bounty hunter while I was in prison. 
and I have chased down over 10,000 and arrested fugitives in a 42-year career. So what I do is catch the bad guy. And <laughs> not, only, not only do I catch him, but after I catch him, I put him in the backseat of the car. It's a, it's, famous, it's a famous ride called the backseat ride. But I talk to him about, you know, how they can change their life and how I changed mine. And God put me in that position. Right now, it's kind of changing. We're going to a, a lot of different places, speaking, ministering to different people. So we still are chasing bad guys, but not near as many as I used to. And probably not quite as bad as the ones you used to pursue. So I, everything you brought up in that introduction to the guy in the grocery store, I'm going to be talking about with you during this podcast. And I want to go all the way okay. back to the beginning. I had a father that I loved and cherished and in whose arms I was safe and who treated me with respect and faith and grace. You had a different version of a father growing up. Would you talk a little bit about your dad? Well, my father, I didn't find out was my stepfather until a couple of years ago, just before my sister passed away, they all told me. And uh, once they said that, I went, oh, no wonder. Yeah. My real, my real dad is a Chiricahua Apache Indian and born in New Mexico on the reservation. So my dad believed in spare the rod, spoil the child. So uh, he would make me pull my pants down even in front of my sisters and lean over the couch or the chair. And then he used, usually the belt wasn't sufficient. So he made a homemade paddler, a board, and would give me so many whacks that I couldn't shower in school. I couldn't sit down. I was completely bruised from the bottom of my butt cheeks all the way down to my knees because he'd use the thighs that hurt the worst. As I grew up, and he grew up, I later loved my daddy so much that, and he finally, before he passed away, told me that he loved me. A uh, person came to me last year and said, would you like to meet your real father? Wow. And I said, I have, his name is Wesley Chapman. So, but I arrested so many guys that I thought, you know, I asked him the question, why did you do this? Oh, I don't know who my dad is, I need a dad. And I would feel sorry. And I wish I could go back to all those guys now and say, hey, you know, that's a bunch of bull. That is not what caused it because I didn't have a real dad either. And I still made it. So he was very abusive. I never, maybe one time at work, heard my dad say a swear word, but I never, ever heard him say that and never, you know, got mad at my mother. He never disciplined her about anything, but I think you saw a different version of nurturing from your mother, not only a different version of faith, as we might show it, but a different way of raising a child. Talk, talk about your mom growing up. Well, I had two sisters and a younger brother. I was the oldest and I was spoiled. My little brother's still alive. And one of my sisters, who my little brother is a, it preaches and my little sister's like on fire for God. My mother would pray in tongues in the room for an hour or so. And I would say, who is mom praying about? And they would say, you, her parents were Christians. And the story I got was one night, mom was 18 and her, my grandmother, her mother got into an argument and my mom went out and got drunk and had sex with this guy and got pregnant. So I was her special child, I guess you might say. And my mom treated me like that. God draws straight with crooked lines. And uh, he's drawn very clear and very straight with your line. But my gosh, it's been wildly crooked up and down along the way to where you are now, dog. So mom yes. is you to these phenomenal pastors, these beautiful messengers. And to be honest about it, you, my friend, are making some pretty lousy decisions in, your, in the middle part of your teenage years. Talk about that motorcycle group that you, you mentioned earlier. What was the name of the group and what was your role within it? Uh, the motorcycle group's name was the Devil's Disciples. And we were one percenters. If you're a one percenter still today, you're outlaw. You're the, the, the meanest of the mean. We were a sister club to the Hells Angels. So at 15 years old, I ran away. 14 actually, but at 15, I joined the Devil's Disciples of Phoenix, Arizona. And of course, back then I had a fake identification and none of the bikers till years ago knew that I wasn't 18. So 
I was skilled. My father made me become a black belt. I was a pro boxer till 91. So I'm pretty good at throwing down. So I would be the first one to walk up and start, you know, pounding on another bike club or whatever it was. So at 17, I became the Sergeant of Arms of the Phoenix chapter of the Devil's Disciples. Sergeant of Arms is the guy that starts the fights, keeps the club in line. You never have to polish someone else's motorcycle. You're you're not the president, the vice president, but you're right underneath that. So I was uh, high up in the echelon in that world. It's a tough world. It's a dark world. You're doing well in that world. And then your life changes in a mighty way when, while being in that world, one of your friends goes in to buy some drugs from someone else. So before we talk about that story, what, what was it in that world that you found attractive enough to leave mom and home behind and pursue things that you've been taught your entire life were wrong? Well, I didn't want to leave my mom. I just wanted her to make my dad quit beating me. She couldn't do that. You know, my mother used to give me the paddle and yeah. when I was very young, as my dad would pull up in his old car and my mom would say, tell him what you did. And then as I got older, you know, the first thing I did at 13, I started sniffing glue because that made the memory go away. And my mom started seeing that this is not good. The biker club gave me the brotherhood that I looked for. Okay. Now, I find the same brotherhood in Christian men and women. I didn't know that. Francie and I, my new Francie, my wife, we've been married just a year and a month or so. We uh, have met some of the greatest, well, you're one of them, the greatest Christians that are in America today. You know, I never actually held another man in the bike club and cried my eyes out. But I met, I've cried with a lot of them. I think it's the brotherhood, the united together, the, you know, the brought us back and forth. So that's what it was. I was looking for love from my fellow man. So I found what I was looking for in the world of the Hells Angels in the world of Jesus Christ, only it's better. That's awesome. Before you found it uh, in Jesus Christ, you had to uh, just about lose it all in the, the Texas penal system. You're in a car, man, with a guy who goes in to buy some drugs, ends up doing a lot more than that. Would you, would you quickly tell the story of what led you to prison? Well, there was four of us in the car, a girl, three brothers, and Donnie, five of us. And we pulled up to get some uh, pot, and Donnie went in the house, and we told him, you know, he didn't like the drug dealer anyway, so I said, you, everyone was drinking, and I said, you have a gun on you? He's like, no. Well, he had a sawed-off shotgun tucked down in his jacket. So all of a sudden, we're sitting in the car waiting, and we hear a boom. And I'm like, what happened? And he comes running out and his hand was all bloody. And I don't know if you know shotguns, but people that do, there's a piece on the bottom for a single shot that you put on. And that piece had broken off and it cut his hand all up. So when he came in, he was bleeding in the hand. And I said immediately to my sister, Cheryl Ann Fisher, drive him to the hospital. And I, I thought the guy shot him. And then he said on the way to the hospital, I hit him in the shoulder I pulled the gun out and he grabbed the gun and I was like, start again. What? Yeah. I just barely caught him in the shoulder. So I went home, called 911. Well, we didn't have 911. I called the police department and we had a prince's phone and you hang them up on the wall. And when the prince's phone sometimes hung up, it didn't hang up. And so my phone at that time didn't hang up after I got done talking to the cops to get him over to the street on Prairie Drive, there had been a shooting. And I told Leland and Dwayne Lee's mom the whole story and the cops were listening. So uh, the next morning, Jerry died, his name was Jerry, and he died. And so on the radio at 6 a.m., I heard Jerry Oliver, 36 years old of Pampa, Texas, Dog Chapman, along with three more devil's disciples are being sought for the shotgun slaying massacre. And I still thought, you know, Donnie did it. He didn't mean to, but he's going to go to prison for it. The guy died. And that we sat in the car and, you know, I was not guilty of murder. Right. And in Texas at that time, and because of who we were, we were all tried together. Well, Donnie was tried separately because he was the shooter. 
Yes. So we, we were all tried and all of us got time. Uh, Ruben Garza got probation. Cheryl Ann Fisher got probation. I got five years in Texas. Donnie got 10. And so uh, I was stunned. I'm like, this cannot be happening. I didn't kill the guy. You know, I didn't even see the shooting. What's going on? They didn't care. Back then, again, who we were, you know, we all had long hair in the West Texas and that was not allowed. And we were bikers and the sheriff, we gave him a lot of problems, police department. You know, we whooped a couple of cops and they did not like us. So I went to prison in 1977. While I was in prison, I'm like, all right, this is it. You know, there ain't no buck gold at the end of this rainbow. And during my life of crime, God was constantly dealing with me all the time. I almost got killed. God said, okay. I almost got killed again. God said, okay. You know, and again, I was raised from birth as a, to be a Christian. And then when I was in prison, the first day I saw, I, I couldn't see the ceiling. It was so high. Hmm. And I, I went back there once to speak and it wasn't really that high. And so I opened the Bible up and went to a scripture. I go, God, why am I in this place? I didn't do this. And God said to me, all the bricks that put this place together are the laws that you broke. And whatever a man reapeth, that also shall be so. And I opened up the Bible and said, lovest thou me, feed my sheep. So I elevated myself to Warden's Barber which is the most prestigious job in prison. The warden made me inmate counselor. When an inmate lost a loved one, I had to go, they put him in the hole right away. I had to go in there and talk him down. You'd learned a skill besides cutting hair in prison. You learned the skill of tracking people down, tackling, tackling them as they ran, and you got a, a nickname while you were in prison. Talk about, uh, I think it's Bigfoot and how you saved his life, the title you got, and ultimately the career that it would open up in front of you. Well, Bigfoot was my best friend. He came to me once, and he's big, huge. And he said, uh, he was had a piece of paper to send, and he looked at me and said, dog, how do you spell was? <laughs> and I said, W-E-Z. And he went, thank you. And I, you know, I didn't know, hardly know him then. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm writing a mom or somebody, a letter. I said, let me look at it. And so it was, I go, what kind of a grade you go to school in? I made it to the fourth grade because he said we had a, a river we had to cross and the ferry cost my mama four cents to ride the ferry. And sometimes she only had three dogs. And I said, can you spell? He's like, yeah. I said, no, you can't. I said, listen, I'll, I'll write that letter for you. Just tell me what you want to say. So I, he dictated, I wrote, or I dictated, he said it. And I wrote the letter and he's like, wow. And he said, can I give you cigarettes or something for it? I said, no, well, what, I got to do something. All right, I said, here's what you do. Any man messes with me, I want you to break him in half. You got it. And he was a loner, no one messed with him. He's too, too big. In prison, we became salt and pepper. He was black, I was white. And everywhere I went, Bigfoot was with me. Or everywhere he went, I was with him. We taught the prisons integration. They had never seen that because Texas in the 70s, there was no such thing. Everybody was a racist. And I was raised, my daddy was in the Navy and he went to an all black school in Colorado my dad was not a racist. You know, he was, uh, my grandfather, his dad kind of was, but my daddy, because of the Navy, you know, believed that every man was created equal. So I didn't even know about racism, right? I mean, I knew about it, but Black Panthers and stuff like that, but I didn't know how real it was. So uh, the warden came to me and told me, you know, that guy's Black. I said, I know, I'm half Apache. He's like, okay, we appreciate you taking care of Bigfoot. Because about five guards would get around Bigfoot if he started messing up. And he would say, one at a time. This cell door, I'll never forget once I could hear him yell, this cell door is big enough for only one of a time could get through it. Come on with it. He had a mattress in his hand with his arm up like that. And so I ran down there and said, Bigfoot, you know, this is right after we became friends. I go, what are you doing, man? You, you sit down over there, take me the hole. I go, only for a couple of days. 
I go, don't worry, man. I'll, I'll make sure you're okay. And I stuck him toilet paper. And so we became really good brothers. So one day uh, the barbershop was outside the main gates of Huntsville prison. It had, it had its own building and we could see everything outside. If you ever see Cool Hand Luke, that's our prison. And the hole was outside by the barbershop. And one day I saw March and Bigfoot into the hole. And I'm like, what are they doing? They said one of his family, I think his auntie or something had just died. So again, they, they put you down in the hole. And so all of a sudden I saw Boss Espinoza come out backwards and hit the ground. And out of that hole came Bigfoot running. Inside the barbershop, I had another black friend. His name was Ronnie Coleman. He was the shoe shine man, they called him. And he shined the guards' shoes and I cut their hair. And I saw Bigfoot run. I said, Ronnie, they're going to kill him. He turned his head not to watch. I could hear the rifles cocking. I could hear the guards screaming, Bigfoot stop. So I bolted out the door. And lo and behold, right behind me was a lieutenant with a 38. And he was just getting ready to shoot me in the back. He told me I was going to shoot you in the back, not the head. And when I got close enough to Bigfoot, I tackled him from his knees and down he went and he started crying and pounding the dirt and saying, dog, my auntie's dead, you know, screaming. And the Lieutenant threw down these handcuffs on the, in the dust. I'll never forget that. And said these words, hook him up, bounty hunter. And I told Lieutenant, I can't hook him up. They put him back in the hole. I went back. And the warden called me down and he goes, man, you're, you cut hair so good. Everybody loves you here. Uh, the, the warden was really upset because I had answers through the Bible. I had answers for every single, like guards were fighting with their wives. I would say, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. The Bible says, you, you bicker with your old lady. Don't bring it up tomorrow, the Bible says. And then you, you, it's easier to keep married. I, I had it going on, right? So the warden was sad that I'd have to leave. And I go, why do I have to leave? He said, because they're going to kill you for running down an inmate. I go, no, they're not. The warden said, I'm going to let you go back to your cell. If you're alive in the morning, you could stay. <laughs> and, I, you know, I thought that was a normal thing. Okay. I said, thank you, warden. As I was there that night, the guy came up to me and said, okay, why'd you run? You know, you ran down a black man. I go, what? I said, I didn't run him down. I saved his life. And so the guy just walked away and said, all right, all right. And so I got up in the morning and in front of my cell were uh, matches, envelopes, home rolled cigarettes, all these different things that we got in commissary. A love offering. So, yeah. So the warden called me down and said, son, you just got you a love offering. Your <laughs> bread is, your bread is buttered, dog. I go, what does that mean, warden? He goes, you got it made here, son. And so a year after that is when I got released. But all of the sudden, I was telling the Lord, what am I going to be? Uh, you know, you could imagine trying to date a girl and going to the father and you got the dad. You ever had any problems? Yeah, I've been in jail, first degree murder, but I didn't do it. Or if, if you go to rent an apartment that back then and today, they ask you, are you a felon? Have you ever been convicted? Yeah, murder. You're nothing. Okay. So I knew that. My life was over. How could I ever even go in a church? God, all of a sudden, one of my favorite shows, and still is, Wanted Dead or Alive with Steve McQueen and The Lone Ranger. I watch him all the time. Francie gets so mad at me. Who was that mass stranger? And so I thought, you know what? I can do this. I can track these guys down and arrest them in the first Three or four years, I thought I'm going to die getting shot down after a bad guy. That'll pay society back for everything I'd done. And so right when I got out of prison, I ordered a badge and a comic book. And I bought a lot of stuff, you know, police-related equipment in the police supply store. Back then, undercover officers were just getting to grow their hair out and beards and all that. So the cops in the cop supply store, what department are you with? I go, oh, I'm... You know, they trashed me everywhere because you can't tell a lie, right? And they'd say, uh, what do they call you? I said, uh, my nickname's Dog. Oh, what's that mean? I said, that's God spelled backwards. They're like, oh, cool, right? So I bought all that stuff and I went to the FBI or the post office, got the top 10. Two weeks later, captured one of the top 10, walked in the FBI 
said 10,000 cash reward, called my mother, said, mom, I got him. My mom said, I knew you would. Mom met me at the FBI office. We went in there. I had a diaper pin in my pocket and I pinned the warrant on the front of the guy's chest. Yes. And I went in and they said, who are you? And I said, I'm dog the bounty hunter. And the feds like, okay. I said, this is your guy, right? Well, I don't know. We got to print him. I go, you don't got to print him. There he is. There's his picture. That's him. I go, can I please get my 10 grand? Because I thought they'd pay you right there, right? And he goes, well, can you come back tomorrow? And, you know, well, I need to talk to my supervisor and ask him what his name was. The guy told him his name and they booked him. So the next day I went back and the feds are like, wow, here's your check. You know, yeah. be sure you pay taxes on this. So then I started. I caught another one and then I started catching, you know, like Channel 9 News or 7 News or Beyond looking for this guy. It was so sad that I knew somebody that knew him. I'm like, I know this guy. I know someone. So then the FBI came to me one day and said, I want you to meet this guy named Tony Robbins. So I met Tony Robbins and spoke with him for many, many years, one of his guest speakers. And then the feds got me alone and they, uh, they assigned Keith Paul, Keith R. Paul, to me. And so every week, once a week, I had to beat him at the white spot and go over the warrants that I had for the next week and go over things, how I arrested the guy. So Keith trained me, and then the feds trained me after that, uh, techniques on, you know, how to put the handcuffs on, put the key up and not down, how to adjust it. Will you please quit walking in saying, all right, right now, reach for the sky. Because I did robberies, right? And that's what I'd say, reach for the sky. And he said, you need to say, put your hands above your head. Oh, okay. I always wore a handkerchief around my neck because when I rode the Harley, there were bugs, right? So I'd pull the mask up and then reach for the sky. And he's like, could you leave the mask off? And you need to say, you know, put your hands above your head. Dog, you mentioned some huge numbers earlier, man. I think you mentioned some 10,000 criminals that you've had influence over helping capture each and every one of those folks dangerous and yet they didn't want to go back to prison talk about what you have done that kept you safe during each of those visits because for me man one of the most amazing things is that through those 10,000 captures with people who don't want to go back to prison over this decades-long career you have somehow remained safe talk about that well, my first book was uh, You Can Run, But You Can't Hide. And thank you, Jesus, it hit number one on the New York Times bestseller, which I didn't understand that. And it's I arrested 10,000, and I, we had to prove it. So after 8,000 body receipts, Disney said, all right, he's done that. I've, I've never missed ever a guy. A few have died while I, I Brian Laundrie, if you heard about him, they, I used to say kiddingly, has anybody ever got away? And I go, yeah, a couple have died. <laughs> and then Brian Laundrie allegedly died. No one ever got away. I would, in the, again, I told you three years or so, I didn't care. I thought if I die, this would make my mother proud, right? Because I had to make my mama proud. My dad told me, burn your birth certificate. You can't never get a driver's license. So I knew I had to make my father proud too. I think that was the main thing is making my daddy love me. It made me him proud. The more and more I got into the Lord while bounty hunting, had a lot of children, I just started saying, in the name of Jesus, the Lord told me, every man you capture, every woman you get, I'm letting you do it. I'm going to lead you to them. They're your peeps. Yeah. I want you to give them the backseat ride, and I want you to say what I tell you to say each time. I said, well, Lord, if I'm going to do that, I need that gift that mama would tell me about discernment because I've had that since I was eight years old. And the Lord said, I will magnify your discernment more than any man on earth. And so I would sit by him and tell him what's going on. So then it became a mission, a mission from God to capture these guys and then to give them the what to about Jesus and God. I worried. I thought maybe this is the last time I'll take these breaths. Yeah. But in the name of Jesus, I'm going through that door. If I would have worried about dying, 
I wouldn't have done it. A couple of times I thought this might be it. So I really prayed up. You know, I got, the Bible says, when you go after a demon, you better have a bunch of prayer and fasting. And so I went after these guys that did like, I wouldn't eat for a couple of days and I'd be in prayer and kids would say, dad, you hungry? I go, nope. Cause I thought this is it. And I would put mug shots in my dash in my car, constantly stare at them. And a lot of them, three, 400 of them would look at me and I'd hear Satan go, that's the guy. Hmm. This is the one that's going to get you. So I wasn't afraid about dying, but I am afraid of dying. What changed between the pursuit of these criminals, these wanted men and women, and the moment they're in the back seat, in the middle seat, dog Bonnie Hunter sits down next to them, and the man, it seems, you hated, and certainly the man they hated who was pursuing them, there's fellowship between you and commonality, frequently smiles and love and tears. What's, what's the cause of that profound change between the pursuit and, and that ride in the back seat? Well, a lot of cops ask me that. How do you stop your adrenaline so immediately? You as a cop or a fugitive chaser, you, a guy runs you for miles in a car. He wrecks, you catch him, you take him out and beat him because he, he, he endangered all these lives of people that he was running for me, endangered your life. I pointed once to this cop asking that. I go, see that camera right there? That's what changes me. Because I'm not going back to jail at all for anything unless I'm innocent for it. That's what did it. I pretend like I was a hitman and I had a, a, a contract and I would go after them like that. Unbelievable. I know their weakness, their strong points, their cigarettes, who their mama, their grandma, their sister, what their nickname is. I know before I go, I study my prey Apache. Mm. I know what I'm going after. My reputation grew strong way before the TV show because all the criminals would say, well, there's this guy named Dog the Bounty Hunter. Don't ever let him be on you because that dog can hunt. I don't know if I saw myself sitting there. You know, a cop did that to me. I was in prison and got accused of shooting a cop in the elbow. And the bikers said I was there. And I told the sheriff there, I wasn't even there, bro. I wasn't even there. So I wore a mic and the Earl Kerr disciple was on the other side of the cell, other side of the tier. And I go, Earl, why are you telling the cops I was there? You already got a murder conviction. I go, that don't matter, man. I was not there. They dropped all the charges on that. So you'd been mistreated and your goal was to, once they were captured, treat them differently than you'd been treated. Well, I wasn't too mistreated by cops because you hit me, I'm coming after you. They were afraid of me. They still, to this day, I have a lot of cops that chase me that are my friends now. And they said, hey, I told them, listen, you beat me like that, I'll be there when you're asleep. Because I tracked way before I bounty hunted. I just had a reputation. So I had so many guys say two things. I never knew you would be after me. Or more times than that one, I knew you were catching me. I had a dream that I was sitting right here. I had other guys, so many, the cops pull up, cops would say, you want to ride with me or dog? They'd all say, I'd like to go with dog. Because he gives you a cigarette? No, because of the backseat ride. Right. Because I would prophesy about them and how, they got into trouble of what's going to happen in their future and say, you know, the Lord told me this. Mm. How did you know that? And I'd reiterate it and say, because the Lord told me, John, you know, what's going down here. You beat your old lady every single day. You know, you beat her till she bled and cried. You want to ask why you, bro, you beat her like that. You're lucky you're alive. Now you're going to pay for it. Just like I did. Well, what do I got to do? You got to quit drinking or you got to quit meth. You know, you're a different human being when you're straight. Marijuana won't do that to you, but those other things will. If you got to do something, can't you go to pot? Can't you smoke that and be, you know, giggly and happy and want a Twinkie? I knew their world because I was from that world. Right. So they, and my brother once went to jail and he was in Adams County Jail and this guy, while he was in there, 
I brought a guy in and my brother said, that guy is the most famous guy in the jail because the cops didn't catch him. The FBI didn't catch him. Dog, the bounty hunter tracked him down. So he had prestige while he was in jail. Yeah, I got nailed by dog, right? They went into population and, you know, they didn't make a mistake. They got tracked down by the greatest bounty hunter in the world. No one got away. So they got kudos because I caught them. So four decades, 10,000 arrests, A&E catches wind of this. They create this show. You are the star. You're surrounded by family. Nine seasons, 246 episodes. The, the number one cable show in the world, man. It's a big deal. Tell me why you think it had the successful run it did. What is it about Dog the Bounty Hunter and your family and that work and that backseat conversation with those guys that kept people tuning in night after night? Well, it's pure the power of God. Because I used to, when I was young, I would look in the mirror and dance like I was on TV. I did a show at six years old. It was called Fred and Faye. And it was all the kids lined up and Fred and Faye would come in and we'd do parties and jokes. And it was a daily show. My mother got me on the show. I wanted to be on TV more than anyone in the world. Mm. And then Tony Robbins, you know, I started meeting high muckamucka celebrities. And then I met a guy named Martin Sheen. And Ozzy Osbourne, I met Sharon. Martin said, man, you need to be on television, buddy. And then Sharon Osbourne, she started telling me what to do, what to say. They did a show with the most dangerous jobs and the craziest jobs, paparazzi, me, trash picker-uppers. We all did a TV show. And they said, just get this guy behind camera. And so then when I started, I knew I needed help. So I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a dad. So I got to bring my children. So I brought my children with me, trained them as we went. And then Beth, I brought her too. And then she started all these crazy antics, right? Just being Beth, the car would pull up and I'd say, Beth, where's the file? She was my secretary. And she flipped me the bird. I said, I need the file, Beth. You didn't put this together, right? And she flipped me the bird. And I thought, oh my God, there goes the show. And they showed it on TV. And I'm like, you know, they kind of blinked her hand, but you know, she's flipped me the bird. And so she got a reputation too, being the meanest girl in Hollywood, right? I know that God wanted me in that position. There's nothing else but God could have done that. And they've tried to make 10 other, 20 other bounty hunter shows and they last about a season. There's no more. And we went to then CMT and we did three years there. And then the last year we did WGN was a season of Beth and how she, the cancer slowly ate her. And uh, it took me a couple of years to, I mourned so bad. And then I pulled my car over one night and I said, this is it, Lord. I drew a circle around that car in the snow on the side of this frontage road. And I said, it's me and you now, Lord. I said, Lord, I need a partner so bad. I just, I'm not going to make it, Lord. I'm going to go back to Hell's Angels, Lord. I don't want to tell you this, but I can't do this, you know? Talk, talk about Francie. You, you were praying for a partner, praying for a friend and a companion. You found her. God led you to her. Talk about Francie. That night, okay, I had just put Beth, put her to sleep. Sounds better. I had a funeral. I had one in Hawaii, we lived there, and she was born here, so I had one here. I was just absolutely devastated, That's and I pulled the car over, and I did all that. So I got home, and I told my neighbor next door, as a lawyer, I have a driveway that's about an eighth of a mile long up on this hill we live in Castle Rock, Colorado, and no one could get up the hill unless you had a four-wheel drive, because it had big old holes in it. I only came like three times a year to this house, so... The maintenance, the roads, I didn't care. I always had a four-wheel drive. So people started bringing presents and condolences and, you know, cooking me dinner. And they said, you got to fix that driveway. So I asked the lawyer next door, who does that? And they said, Bob Frame. He's the guy. He does that. You got his number? Yes. So I called up Bob. I left a message. The next day or so, I get this phone call. I look down at the Colorado number. She goes, hi, this is Francie. Is Doug there? And I went, Doug? 
Well, I get called Doug 30% of the time. Right. You know, that's a, that's a normal thing. Like if I order food, can I have a name? Dog. I walk in, it says Doug. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I'm used to that, right? And I go, yes, ma'am. What do you need? You called my husband, Bob, for your driveway. She goes, let me tell you, I'm very sad to say about six months ago, Bob passed away of cancer. Oh, man, that hit me so hard. I start crying. Right. So Francie's thinking in her mind, according to Francie, why is Doug crying over Bob? Mm. You know, I, I, she was with Bob 14 years. She knew every one of Bob's friend. Bob was a Christian. So is Francie. Why would Doug cry over Bob? So she started telling me, I go, ma'am, that's amazing. I just lost my wife too. No. Yes, ma'am. Today, a week ago was her funeral here in Colorado. Oh, I'm so sorry. She told me you're mourning. So mourn, don't. So I thought, wow, this lady is cool, man. She's talking about Jesus and the Lord. And I was the spiritual leader amongst my group, right? And here's this lady. I have no idea about that. I have no idea that was what I just asked for. You also shared with me from Francie's perspective, how God brought you to her. One of them being one of your favorite Psalms, Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encampeth round them that fear him. Doug, talk about how that scripture came into play when you and your son Leland were on the hunt for an alleged drug trafficker named Cameron Lawhead. I went after uh, Lawhead, this guy who carved my name on the brass of his bullet. And so we went to California. That time I didn't catch him, but we kicked the door in. And my son Leland said, Dad, he's in there with the gun. And I go, I know, son. And Leland goes, Dad, he's going to kill us. And I go, son, in the Bible. I said, son, I quoted him that scripture. I said, you get right behind daddy. I'm kicking that door in. Don't you worry. Angels are camped about around us. We booted the door and the guy got away, got out the back. I caught him later. On the way to the motel that night, this girl named Francie wrote me the scripture and it was that one. We rent Airbnb, so I get in the room by myself and I go, man, this lady is a widow. We all Christians know we don't mess with children or widows, scripturally. So I'm not thinking nothing ever, you know, as a partner. <laughs> right. But I'm thinking this lady's got the power of God, right? I need, to, I need that right now. I'm alone. No one's telling me about Jesus, right? And so I start talking to her on the phone. Every night we come home from the hunt. She's got more scriptures and more scriptures that were matching what I did that day. I go home. I was on the road three weeks. Francie and I talk a little bit. One day I went to get surgery on my head. I had bandages all over. I was driving up the hill and I'm like, man, you know, I'm so lonesome, Lord. I see a text that said from Francie Frame. So I'd never read it till the other day. We got all the texts. So I call this Francie up. I go, hi. She goes, hi. I said, you live close to Castle Rock, right? Yeah. You want some coffee? Now, when do you ask a girl, do you want coffee, right? But I figure she's a redneck. She'll get that, right? Coffee means no hands-on. We're drinking coffee, right? I never asked that before. As you tell the story, she listening to every word you say? She listens to every word I say, brother, all the time. She's got ears like a hawk. <laughs> so uh, I say, well, you make me for coffee at Castle Rock Cafe. It's got a big old buffalo head on the wall. So I'm picking a rancher place, right? Right. And she's like, well, sure. And so I never get there early. Believe me, brother, I got there early because I wanted to see when she made her entrance. I already seen a picture of her and I thought, she's way too tall. She is not my style at all. Thank you, God. She's a widow, taboo. So she walks in, she got cowgirl boots on, cowgirl stuff, and... I look at her hands. She got really long fingers like my mother. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. We talk. I felt really good. Nothing husband or wife kind of feel. I felt, you know, this lady's Christian, right? I asked her a bunch of questions, make sure that she was, you know, like assembly of God-ish. And she was, she changed my mind about a couple of scriptures right there sitting. <laughs> oh yeah. So I'm lonesome again. So I call her up and I go, listen, 
you want to go to a movie? And she goes, well, I don't know. What kind of movie? I go, not a drive-in, but a walk-in. How about Jumanji? You know, I couldn't think of any other kind of Christian-ish movie. You know, thank God for Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. She goes, I'll go to a movie with you because this is not a date. And I go, I know. Well, we both know it was an undercover date, kind of, right? But I just wanted to be around this Christian lady. So she goes, you'll have to go to church with me first. All right. We go in, sit down. They start worship service. I started getting goosebumps all the way through my body, right? Been a long time, Ross, since I did that. Mm. And the pastor, he's like 6'3". And he starts walking up and down the stair. And I hear a gift of tongues come out. And the interpretation comes and it says something like this. You ask me and what you ask me for is right in front of you. I was like, oh, dear Lord, how do I tell her that lady, I just fell in love with you. It took a couple, it took over a year from that first conversation before she would start it even, you know, like, let's, okay, now, Francie, we're going on a date, a real date. I said, I'm going to probably, Francie, I'm going to cry again. I said, Francie, I'm going to probably ask you to marry me. Yes. She said, well, if you, if you do, you'd have to get down on one knee. I go, I ain't doing that. I kneel for God and bow for the flag. I'm not getting, well, then I ain't answering, she said. So I said, well, when I get down on one knee, will you get down on your knee too and help me back up? Sure. So I get down on one knee and say, Miss Francie, Frayne, will you please marry me? She stood up. She wouldn't go down. I waited for her to kneel down to help me. She just stood there. I looked at her like, hey, lady, you know, that's your cue. <laughs> and so I had to stand up by myself. And she looked at me and she said, absolutely. She didn't say yes. She said, absolutely, Dwayne Lee Chapman. Oh, I took a deep breath. And then a few months later, it's been a, it's been a year and three or four weeks that we have been married now. We're going to wrap up in a minute with with a few rapid fire questions, but I know you and Francie are doing work together, prison ministry. Tell our yes. listeners what that is and why it matters and maybe how they can get involved in supporting. Francie and my sister, Katie Souza, have come up with the dog houses, okay? Can you come help me with this and explain, Francie Chapman? Come on in, Mama. Francie. I would have been finished with your husband an hour and 36 minutes ago, but he's been spending the last hour and 21 minutes talking about you. And so I just, I just want you to know that you're coming into this room, but the room is already warm and we're grateful that you're part of it. So you, you are beloved. You are truly beloved. Thank you. So is he. The question I had for dog before you walked in was tell me about the foundation. Tell me about the work you're doing in prisons. I have heard a lot of what, what dog has shared with you and, you know, the, the miraculous way that God brought us together, we, we know that that's for God's kingdom. Early on, we knew that God was going to use us in ways that aren't just traditional. We are, we're, we're called to something more and, and something else. And so uh, we started going into, Katie has, my best friend Katie Souza has been doing prison ministry for 15 years. When we went into the first prison with her in Missouri, our hearts were just wrecked mm. because dog was there and I should have been there. We, we just knew instantly that, you know, this was part of what God had us doing. Katie and I also have a heart for women who have been abused right. and have been in, involved in sex trafficking. We started the dog foundation under two umbrellas one that dog would chase the bad guys and two that that we would rescue the women we are starting under the dog foundation the house of bounty and yeah. so we have a two-year program put together that we want to get these women whether they're coming out of prison and they want to get back together and get healed and whole and walk in all the things that god has called them to Mm. or they're in an abusive marriage, or they're coming out of sex trafficking, we want to help them get whole and healed and find their purpose 
and uh, Katie's ministry is called Expected End Ministries, and she found her expected end in prison, and we want to bring people's expected end and the calling on their life and their destiny uh, to them, and to have them turn around and be disciples to other women. I know it's relatively new. The work itself has been done for a while, but your specific work with dog on this front is relatively new. What's been most surprising so far? I've seen videos online, read about it, but our listeners, this might be new to them. What's been most surprising to you as you've gone out there and shut your eyes, walked in and done the work? Number one, God told me early on when when I I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I didn't uh, come to the Lord until I was older. (laughs) Double digits. God told me early on that uh, you're going to raise my daughters to life. And while I have heard him saying that uh, to me, I also ran from it for a long time. And so I wasn't expecting to go into prisons and fall in love with these women and step into the thing that God has called me to. Really truthfully, when we give God our yes, our full wholehearted yes, then he leads us into exactly what he's called us to. And you get that aha moment where you're like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. Mm. And so I had that in the prison and then it just has this fire in me has continued to grow on how we can help these women get whole and healed. And, and I have, had to go through that in my own life also uh, to get whole and healed and to walk in all that God's called me to. Mm. So it was a process. I believe I saw a video with you and Katie and dog. And, and the question was, uh, was asked, how many of you have been abused? And every hand of the ladies, oh. every single, it was the most painful moment. Yes. recognize how yes. broken these folks are before they come in, before they commit some crime that landed them there in the first place. And then you step in to remind them there's hope. Yeah. We have seven questions that we wrap every single podcast up. I'm going to have links to all your work and your ministry, but I'm, I'm going to go back and forth between the two of you leading into the seventh and final. The first question is what's been the most inspirational or impactful book you've ever read? You know, I don't read too much. Francie reads to me, but I still stick with the New Testament. She's got all these new, the new New Testament, or the King James. She's got all the ones you can understand. So I like the part, the parts in the Bible where the soldiers, you know, conquer the other side and the angels come. And lo and behold, I looked in the sky and there's the angel so big. And I love them kind of stories. That's my kind of book. So I have to say for me, It would be Katie's book, and a friend of mine gave it to me after Bob passed away, and it was one of the darkest times in my life, and um, with all the things that I've been through in my life, I had never experienced pain like that. When my friend gave me Katie's book, uh, I can't even tell you, I still keep it on my nightstand, and the pages are full of tears and my writing. And some of the pages are ripped out because I have flung that book across the room numerous times, just reading her words. And uh, she talks so much about fighting for what God has for us. What's the name of it? Do you know? Uh, finding your expected end. What, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you both possessed as young people that you wish you modeled and shined through as beautifully today? So something you had when you were little but maybe you've lost a little bit along the way through life. Okay, so the first thing that came to my mind was, I think I miss some of the naivety that I had when I was younger um, and the things that I've experienced and seen in my life in the streets and the street life and the drug life and all of that. I I miss some of that. As I matured, I got what I wanted. So mine's just the opposite. I dreamed about being who I am and I'm becoming that person. It's kind of opposite. I got better as I, I things got better for me as I got older. Mm. If your home caught fire, 
I see the fire burning behind you right now. And both of you have used the term on fire for faith or life yeah. to describe your life today. But if your actual home caught fire and all living things are out and you both have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, one thing, what's that one thing that you come racing back outside with? My Bible. Why your Bible? Um, because it has all of the tears and joy and the notes and all the, the times that I have been on my face begging the Lord to let me come home because I couldn't take one more day of the pain that I was going through. But it also has in it all the times that he showed up. Right. And while I was going through whatever it was at the time, it's got all the times that he showed up to remind me how loved I am oh. and that he is never, ever going to leave me. Dog, that's a tough act to follow. But as you come out of this burning house, what, what do you want in your, your right hand? Well, if I saw the Bible, I'd grab that. But I'd grab my hairspray brush and my dog. <laughs> that's that's probably true. <laughs> if the Bible was there and I'd seen it, I'd grab it. But you can always go get another King James. So, But you can't get a brush and a hairspray like I got. And I love my dog. <laughs> if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased who would you like to be seated next to for me it would be i have a mentor in my life and her name is clarice fluid she's from louisiana she is the most amazing woman that i have met in my life and if i could be on a park bench with her and I wouldn't even have to say a word. Mm. I just want him always soaking in all that she has to pour out. Dog. Well, even though the abuse, I want to sit by my daddy. Of course you would say that. Talk about that, man. Like I usually don't ask clarifying questions on this final recap, but this is so surprising with all the, the dear loved ones you've lost and your, your love of the word and you could you choose St. Peter and a million others. You chose the man who, who was abusive and rough on you. Why, why did you choose your dad? Because I love him so much and I, I want him just to say, you did it. You did it. You did it. What you told me that you were going to do. I'll come out of this, dad. Don't worry. I'm your son. Don't worry about it. I'll make it. So I'd love to just sit by. When I go to heaven, I want to see all the people my animals, all my pets, but I hope to God my daddy meets me at the gate. What's the best advice that your father, your mother, the beautiful lady on your lap or anybody else has ever given you? When Bob passed away, he wrote me six letters Ooh. and sent them to me in the mail. Through his brother. Yeah. In the return address, it said Bob Crane, and underneath his name, he wrote Heaven. <laughs> and in those letters, he had a foot and a half in Heaven when he was writing them, and they were God's words in Bob's handwriting. And one of the things that he said to me was, you lift your chin up and you put your crown on because you're the daughter to the Most High King, and you're journey has not ended it's just beginning and god has a call on your life and you need to chase after it and never quit it would be that francie is a joan of arc exactly that kind of way <laughs> she does punch you back <laughs> francie is a tough girl man she's a tough a tough broad brother Dog, He's a tough girl. So you got to be kind of tough to be attracted to Dog the Bunny Hunter, man. I, I, I hate to encourage oh, you sometimes, but look at look in the mirror, man. You got to be pretty tough. <laughs> just get on your lap. I hope that I hope that was good and not bad. Complimentary. <laughs> you got to you got to be blind to be able to love the dog. No, <laughs> mine is that again, like Francie. You, my mother would say, there for the gifts of God's calling are without repentance. What are you going to do, son, when you're standing in line with the preachers? What advice would you give yourself at age 20? I know it's a long time ago and life has oh, unfolded in wild ways since then, but what advice would you give yourself at age 20? Because of some of the things that I've gone through when I was younger, 
when I was 15. I walked away from a promising softball career and I gave up on myself because I just didn't want to fight anymore. And I didn't even know what I was fighting for. The devil was whispering a lot of things in my ear. But I would tell myself that don't ever, ever give up on yourself. You keep going and don't you dare give up. Uh, at 20, I rode with the devil disciples. So I would say, is this ever, I want to be what my mama wants me to be. How can I get there? Yeah. I always wanted to make my mother and father proud, but the religious part proud for my mother. So I would, I never went full blown demon. I never went that, I never, there was always a little bit of God in me. So I, I wish I would have told myself, stop right now. And there really is more fun being a Christian. It really is. Everything, and I won't go into R-rated stuff, but everything <laughs> is a lot better. Is that okay? When the Lord's involved. When God, when the Lord is involved. See how she answers my ending? After Hours podcast. Yeah. So, but it is everything. You don't have yeah. to worry about, you know, getting drunk. Did you tell a girl or her getting drunk? Did she tell a guy or did you leave a fingerprint or, you know, did anyone see you? Now all the cameras are everywhere. It's just so much fun being a Christian and seeing people come to the Lord. Well, you didn't, you didn't tell yourself that, but you're living it now. So the final question for both of you is this. It has been said that all great people and all humble people and all beautiful people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I have redeemed you and called you by name and you are mine. I would like him to say, dog, I'm very proud of you, son. I'm so proud of you, Dwayne Lee. Mm. He is. Well done, good and faithful servants. This has been a most surprising, most inspirational, most impactful conversation. I wasn't expecting it to go long. I wasn't expecting, Francie, for you to walk into the room and for you to wrap up strong. You made a good conversation, one that I'll never forget. Thank you. And so have you to us. Thank you. We watched your testimony today. We felt like worms on a potato. <laughs> I'm like, wow. You were we, crying. We were... I was cheering you on. Well, my friends, it was an absolute pleasure to sit down with the great dog, the bounty hunter, and his bride, Francie. While it's always interesting to hear about his bounty hunting stories and his early life and what he's doing today in his journey, for me today was also about the love that he has for his bride now, Francie, and the life-changing work that they are doing together with the Dog Foundation. By providing compassion and a healthy structure, they are empowering victims to become thriving survivors. Another person that chooses to bring joy and grace and dignity to those imprisoned and marginalized is my friend, and this guy is my friend, Eric Jenis. Eric, as a composer and a pianist, performs not just on the biggest stages around the world, but his favorite stage in prisons, drug rehab centers, nursing homes, inner city schools, and veterans facilities. That's where he provides life-giving concert performances to uplift the human individuals, to elevate the human condition, and to bring hope through the language and through the beauty of music. It's one of the most riveting conversations I think we've ever had as part of the Live Inspired podcast. And if you want to learn more about where you can tune into that one, check it out at episode number 290. It is recorded with Eric Jenis. One more time, my friends, episode 290. Or you can visit me right now online. Let your fingers do the walk and go to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Find it there at episode 290. Well, my friends, what a joy it is to do life with you. I thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community. And I remind you on behalf of Dog the Bounty Hunter and his bride, Francie, that the foundation is firm. The headwinds may be real, but transformation is possible and the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary and today is your day. Live Inspired. 
Akili companies, they are all about the Akilian culture and they know people are the most important asset. Recently, Akili companies entered a new chapter of their organization and underwent an entire corporate rebrand driven by the same mission and core values. Akili companies is a family owned enterprise of companies across the country. They act as your single source for investment, development, management, construction, and restoration. They are still the same Keeley you know and you love, just with a fresh, streamlined look and new additions to the family. Who knows? Maybe you'll see the Keeley K around your time, and when you do, go on in, shake their hand, and tell them John O'Leary sent you. My friends, to learn more about the work they do and where they are, visit them online at KeeleyCompanies.com.